We live in a world where chaos so often reigns, where questions about suffering, free will and God's sovereignty linger like uninvited guests. We find ourselves searching for clarity, understanding and most of all a deep connection with our Creator. Today we continue our journey through the pages of Ephesians, a journey that promises to illuminate the profound mysteries of faith, divine sovereignty and our role in God's grand design. This morning we're going to uncover the tapestry of God's sovereign plan, intricately woven together with human free will. It's a tapestry that reveals the breathtaking beauty of His grace, the assurance of our inheritance and the boundless power that fuels our journey of faith. In a world often obsessed with emotions that override truths, we'll rediscover the call for truth anchored in wisdom and revelation, where hope is more than just a feeling but a divine calling. So let's dive into the heart of Ephesians, where wisdom meets revelation, where hope becomes a calling, and where divine sovereignty blends harmoniously with our free will. This message today, I hope, will unlock for us the door to a deeper revelation and relationship with God and a richer understanding of our place in His grand design. So if you have your Bibles with you today, please open them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV translation today. Uh, We're starting at verse 11. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things in accordance with the plan of His will. This verse contains one of the strongest statements in Scripture that God is sovereign. The idea here in this verse is that God shows a plan after deliberating on the wisest course of action that would accomplish His purpose. And that utterly astonishingly includes us, recipients of His inheritance predestined according to his purposes. And this might lead you to question then, how does God carry out his plan? We all know that as soon as humans get involved, the plan goes out the window, right? Like the military says, no plan survives first contact. But if God is sovereign and he has purposed things according to his will... How does he carry out his plan? Well, first, I guess there's sort of three areas, I reckon. He accomplishes some things directly and exclusively himself, like when he performs miracles. He accomplishes other things through the agencies of others. So we are part of that, an example of that. So God uses angels and humans to accomplish his will. He also accomplishes some things through providence, which is his working through the natural course of of events that he guides. 
unquestionably, God is absolutely sovereign, the ultimate authority over all things. But there's one thing that's terribly difficult for us to grasp when it comes to the sovereignty of God, and that is that He gave us free will. The fact that He gives us the freedom to choose and then justly holds us responsible for our choices, it it is difficult to understand and explain. However, Scripture clearly teaches both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. J. Carl Laney helps us understand this a bit more. He writes, When discussing God's sovereignty and human freedom, it is important to recognise three different aspects of God's will. God's sovereign will is what God decrees to come to pass. It includes all things, as we read here, and is irresistible and immutable. God's perceptive will is what He prescribes or prefers. This aspect of the will of God includes His moral desires as revealed in His Word. And third is God's permissive will, refers to what the Lord permits, even when it is not in conformity with His revealed or prescribed will. God may permit sin, though it is not in keeping with what He prefers. Is that helpful for us understanding God's sovereignty? And I think it explains so much when it comes to answering the age-old question of why God allows suffering. You see, He allows us to choose to follow His prescribed will, but He also allows us to choose to sin. The natural consequences of sin is sadly so often experienced in suffering. When someone sins against us and causes us to suffer because of their sin, That isn't God causing suffering, it's the natural consequences of others choosing to sin, which God allows or is permissive of because He has given us free will. You know, my heart breaks at the suffering in Israel right now. Even in the middle of that terrible situation, I know God is still sovereign And even though he is allowing this war to happen, I know he is still orchestrating many things according to his will. For example, I saw footage this week of where a rocket that Hamas had fired into Israel landed. It hit a car that was parked and empty in the street, totally destroying that car, but it missed all of the houses around it which were full of people. That's one example of the grace of God in the midst of a terrible war where there's been so much loss of life. I pray for the innocent civilians who are being used as human shields, who have been kidnapped and murdered, who have been injured and who have died in these terrorist attacks from Hamas, and I pray for Israel. But what I also find is, in God's amazing sovereignty, is that we have such great hope in Christ. God chose Jews to be believers to the praise of His glory. The Jews were the first people to put their hope in Jesus Christ. And Paul is speaking of those who, like himself, had once been Jews, 
who had the Messianic prophecies and had looked for the Messiah and by God's grace had been led to see that in Christ they had found the Messiah. Many, uh, may many more Jews come to see and know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And you never know, in God's sovereignty, the events happening right now might lead them to Jesus. That is a hope I have. But then Paul addresses those who aren't Jews. He says in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, God's spiritual blessings for believers are not based are based not only on the sovereign election of the Father and the redemptive work of the Son, but also on the seal of the Holy Spirit. And not only Jews, but Gentiles also had to come to hope in Christ for our salvation. The vehicle that God uses to bring His elect to faith is the message of truth, the gospel message, the good news of salvation. When Gentiles in Ephesus heard it, they listened to it and believed it. That resulted in their salvation and their sealing by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what has occurred for you and me. When we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, we too are sealed with the Holy Spirit. When the Gentiles believed, God sealed them in Christ. And it provides for us a guarantee of eternal security. You see, in Roman culture, when Paul wrote this letter, seals indicated many things. They indicated security, authentication and approval, genuineness and ownership. God seals believers by giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit who keeps us securely in Christ. The Jews incorrectly regarded circumcision as a seal of their salvation. The Lord Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would permanently indwell believers, not just Gentile believers, not just Jewish believers, but all believers. The Spirit seals all believers. All the blessings that Paul spoke of become the possession of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, I, I, I look at that like the, the first instalment of all that God will give us as his children. It's the first bit of receiving our inheritance. It's not just a promise, but the first part of our inheritance. I guess you could, might call it the down payment. The fact that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit now assures us that the rest of our salvation will inevitably follow. You could almost look at it like an engagement ring, that sort of pledge that God makes to us, that our full benefits of inheritance will come, either when Christ returns or when we die and go and be with Him. So what's the purpose of all this? Well, quite clearly we read, it's to bring praise and glory to God. Our salvation, our sealing of the Spirit, 
brings God praise and glory. John Stott writes, This beautiful phrase to the praise of his glory needs to be unpacked. The glory of God is the revelation of God, and the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God. To live to the praise of the glory of his grace is both to worship him ourselves by our words and deeds as the gracious God he is, and to cause others to see and to praise him too. See, it's not just for us. And that, to the praise of his glory, ends the sentence that Paul began in verse 3. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? I spoke the whole sermon last week on not all the full portion of this sentence. And in that sentence, Paul writes specifically of nine spiritual blessings that come with our union with Christ, with our Saviour. They are election, predestination, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge, sealing, and inheritance. All of them in Christ, according to His will. Sovereign God is responsible for all these blessings. I heard of a couple who took a a 25th anniversary trip to Bermuda. They didn't get lost in the triangle. They made reservations for a standard room in a large hotel. It was called the Southampton Princess. When they arrived, they were placed in a much nicer, more expensive room at no extra cost. They'd been upgraded four price levels um, because they made their reservation months earlier. At first, they didn't know that they'd been upgraded. They thought that they were in a standard room. But it soon became apparent that they had the privileges that other guests did not. So they asked the front desk about the privileges and they learned what they were. They had the terry toweling bathrobes. They had a safe in their room. They had as much free fruit as they wanted. Daily newspapers, a special lounge area, lots of beach equipment they could just use where others' guests had to, to pay for. Yet had they not inquired, they would not have known of the privileges and would have spent their whole vacation not enjoying them. You imagine finding out afterwards that you could have had all this sort of stuff for free and not using it? Don't be, put yourself in that position when it comes to your faith. Use the privileges, engage in them, engage in the privilege that we have as people sealed with the Holy Spirit. Don't find out about them all later and then, man, I wish I had to use them my whole life. How annoying is, would it be when you get to heaven and you stand there with Jesus and Jesus says, hey, why didn't you use all these blessings that I gave you? Oh, I never even knew they were available. Well, did you not read my word? Did you not hear all the blessings that I have for you? Use them. They're there to be used by us now. You see, intellectual understanding is one thing. But it's also important to put this into practice. You see, God has revealed us many privileges. He's given us many privileges as Christians through his, and we find out about them through his word. So don't go through life unaware of them. 
take advantage and appreciate them. All the blessings mentioned in these verses are for all Christians, all believers. And there's so many more as we continue to delve into Scriptures that we can find out more than just these nine I spoke of. So this first section is all about the blessings in Christ, which speaks of the purpose of salvation, which is God's glory. Paul then prays that believers would appreciate and appropriate these things in their own lives, that we would make use of them. And then he starts another sentence, which goes from verses 15 right through to verses 23 in the Greek text. So basically the first chapter of Ephesians is just two sentences. But, and that's why the rest of this message you'll see breaks in clunky spaces because I can't break the whole thing off. It'll be, I'd get confused and you would too. So let's get our first little clunky passage I'm going to um, dissect for us. Um, verse 15. For this reason, what is said in verse, right through to verse 14. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You see, Paul had per- personally witnessed the faith and love of the Ephesians. Uh, and he'd done that five or six years earlier. Uh, but he had evidently received fresh reports of their continued faith and commends them for this and their love. See, faith is the expression of our trust in God, our vertical relationship. Love is the evidence of our proper relationship with other people, our horizontal relationship. And these qualities in his readers stimulated Paul to give thanks to God for their present condition and to petition him for their present and future needs. He said he prayed for them repeatedly. He prayed for them, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you... Um, yep, yeah. oh, hold on. There we go. Sorry, that the Lord of our God, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul asked God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He's asking God to bestow upon them an attitude of wisdom and revelation. See, wisdom enables us to perceive reality accurately. Revelation is the unveiling of a subject that is contemplated, in in this case, God himself. And wisdom by revelation is the idea. So what does that mean, wisdom by revelation? It means that we receive enablement to perceive reality accurately according to what God has given, has revealed. Paul was praying for a specific enablement by the Spirit so that readers would understand God's mysteries. The goal in view is that we might gain greater knowledge of God. See, Paul wanted his readers to know God more intimately and personally as, as our personal Heavenly Father 
to become closer friends with him. He prayed that as we read the scriptures, God would enlighten us more and more about himself and give us revelation and understanding of him. William Barclay writes, The Christian life could be described as getting to know God better every day. A friendship which does not grow closer with the years tends to vanish with the years. And it is so with us and God. See, we gain greater knowledge of God as God enlightens our understanding. The heart that Paul is speaking of here, in the Bible, the heart when is mentioned, it, it, it is the inward self comprising of our mind and emotions. And the eyes of the heart is a vivid mixed metaphor that suggests not just intellectual understanding, but total comprehension of God. In Hebrew thinking, which Paul employed, mixed metaphors enrich the thought, but in English, they seem to just confuse it. So let's try and think like the Hebrew and, and, in, and see this as a richness, not a confusion. And what Paul wants us to have is not just warm affections and emotions, but that we should work hard and labour to have clear understandings. We should be ambitious in our efforts to know God as best as possible through clearly understanding His Word and not just feel close to God. Truth matters greatly as well as our feelings. But this isn't a message that you'll hear from our world, particularly not in our climate today, because our world is ruled by emotions and how you make me feel. It is not ruled by truth, but rather is ruled by emotions. And Paul wants us to wake up to the realities before us. Truth matters greatly. If we just run off emotions, then we will be easily offended and will never be able to engage with the truth because the truth might not be what I want it to be. And so if the truth doesn't agree with me, then it hurts my feelings and makes me feel bad. And so I will then make up my own truth so I don't feel bad anymore. Have you come across this thinking in our world? Yes, we've all seen it, haven't we? It has infiltrated all of public life. People's feelings are now more important than the truth. We can't offend people and speak the truth, so we're now expected to just go along with utter madness and in some cases even celebrate mental disorders so we don't offend people. The whole trans movement and the definition of a woman is one such area. It's astonishing that answering a simple question like, what is a woman, is such a difficult thing because emotions are valued more than truth. That's just one example. I'm sure you've got so many other examples that you can think of where people's emotions have overridden facts and truth. How they feel about something all of a sudden is more important than what the truth actually is. And Paul is clear. Truth matters. 
not just emotions. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened through an attitude of wisdom and revelation from God. May we look at the world through that wisdom and revelation rather than looking at the Bible and what God says through the lens of the world. You see, we are Christians 100% of the time. We don't get to take a Christian hat off and then become a secular person. We are Christians 100% of the time. And so do our values, do the way we live our life, do the way we think about our world, do they reflect what God has revealed to us? Do they reflect his wisdom to us? Do they reflect this revelation wisdom? Or do we put that to the side for a bit and then go and interact with the world like the world interacts with each other and then come back and put our Christianity back on? That's not what Paul wants. That's not what the Bible teaches of us. We'll look at the world and be agents in the world taking the hope of the gospel with us, not putting it on a shelf so that we don't offend people. I'm a little bit passionate (laughs) about that. Verse 18. Wisdom and truth matters. So that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. The reason Paul, did, Paul prayed this prayer was threefold. He wanted his readers to know factually three things. First, he wanted us to know the hope that is ours because God has called us to salvation through election. Every Christian should appreciate our sure hope for the future that rests on our calling to salvation in the past. And second, Paul needed us to realise that we would be an inheritance that God would receive when we go to be with him. Paul spoke before of the believer's inheritance in verse 14, and he speaks here of God's inheritance in the saints. This inheritance will be valuable because believers are people whom God paid dearly for with the blood of his own son. So it will be a glorious inheritance because when we see the Lord, we will experience glorification and purification from sin and we are his inheritance. Have you seen that before? That we are God's inheritance? What a great concept that is. It's almost like we get to give a gift of ourselves to God because he's given us the gift of our salvation. He takes joy in his inheritance. We take joy in the generations below us, don't we? We care for them greatly and deeply. As I've come to understand even more fully this week, how deeply we feel for those generations below us. Imagine how deeply God feels for you then. And third, Paul wants us to know the great power of God that affects Christians. The power that Paul refers to here is this spiritually dynamic living force. And Paul describes it as energetic, inherent in God and able to overcome resistance. It's the boundless power of God that is available to us as believers. We've been sealed with that power. That power is available to us to use for his glory. And by making us his inheritance, God has shown his love. By pronouncing us a wonderful future, 
He has encouraged our hope and he has strengthened our faith through the power of God towards us who believe. And according to the work of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, God manifested this power in Christ in three ways, which Paul gives us so that we can appreciate it more. God's power raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted to and seated him at God's right hand in heaven. Jesus Christ's present rule on his father's throne over the church is not the same as his rule on David's throne over David's kingdom. The first is present and heavenly, and the second one is future and earthly. And what this is talking about is the millennial reign of Christ, which we spoke about last week, which is to come at Christ's return. But the same divine power that was, has done all that is available to us now and is indispensable for us in order to live lives that are pleasing to God. How do we live a life pleasing to God? By the power that he gives us. Christ's ascension has resulted in his exaltation far above all authority, human and angelic, present and future. The Jews believed that angels controlled human destiny, but Paul saw Jesus Christ doing this. Jesus Christ controls human destiny. And so in context, the rule, authority, power and in, dominion in view here are probably descriptions of angelic rulers that Christ is, has authority over far above more. And another manifestation of God's power in Christ was the Father's subjection of all things to Christ. How many things? Some things. Not these little bits and not those little bits, is it? No, it's just some things. I'm sure it's just some things. Is that what it says? It says all things. That's right. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you think we're trying to get the picture that it's all? Is there any part of our existence that God is not sovereign over and that Christ is not in authority over? No. So what happens when someone that we love is hurting? God is sovereign. Christ is in control. And so we can pray for his intervention, can't we? When our world seems to be on a track that is so far against what the Bible reveals as God's will, what can we do? We can pray, we can trust, and we can live according to the authority of Christ that is over all. We don't have to choose to participate in the rubbish that goes on in our world. We can live by His standards and according to His will, in His power. Isn't that good? That's wonderful. You see, Adam lost his lordship over creation by his disobedience to God. But Jesus gained 
his lordship over creation by his obedience to God. Which example should we follow, Adam or Christ? Christ. His lordship over creation will be obvious in the future when he reigns during the millennium. That'll be very obvious then. And in addition, the manifestation of God's power in Christ Jesus as appointed overhead of the church is one aspect of his lordship that is evident now. The church is the body of Christ. Not the buildings, but the people. We are his hands, his feet and everything else. The church is the fullness of Christ because Jesus fills the church with blessings. You are those blessings, right? And you have been given granted blessings also. And the church is filled with Christ himself. Jesus is filling the church with blessings. Spiritual blessings are in abundance with Christ, who is the head of the church and is filling the church with blessings. And these blessings are supposed to overflow out of us into our community. See, we are blessed so that we can bless others. So how might we bless others? We can bless others by speaking the truth of God's revelation into circumstances that we all are facing. They are loved by God and can find a home and a family where they can belong in His church amongst us. See, what's the difference between those in the church and those outside the church anyway? Well, one of the main differences is we know we need help. We know we can't do it ourselves. We know we cannot save ourselves. See, we're all sinners, but we've acknowledged our need for help. We can't save ourselves. And so we have repented of our sin and received the forgiveness of God. And now we try to live in submission to God and His will. We try to live in submission to the truth revealed by God and the wisdom that is revealed by God and live with an attitude of wisdom and revelation, truth and feeling. And that is available to anyone. That gift of salvation, God makes freely available to everyone. And so we should be flowing overflowing with the hope we have in Christ and be beacons of hope in our community. So what have we covered today? Well, after showing that believers have received all spiritual blessings that we looked at last week, Paul prayed that we might come to know God intimately. It's necessary so that we might better appreciate three things our past calling to salvation, which gives us hope, the future inheritance that we as the church constitute to God, and the present power of God available to us. God manifested this power in the past at Christ's resurrection and ascension. He will manifest it in the future by making Jesus Christ head over all creation, and He is now manifesting this power in Jesus Christ's headship over the church. May we each know God more intimately and rest in the assurance and unity of God's power in Jesus Christ's headship over the church. But how might this practically impact your week ahead? 
Well, first of all, whatever your circumstances, rest in God's sovereignty. Acknowledge God's ultimate control and trust His plan even in the most difficult situations. Recognize that we, yes, do have the freedom to make choices. We're still responsible for those choices. And so we should align our choices with God's revealed will in Scripture. But above all, whatever the circumstances, we need to rest in God's sovereignty. Secondly, we should be pursuing wisdom and understanding. Seek a deeper knowledge of God through His Word so you know truth, not just emotion. See, I know some people say, my life with God is so... I feel close to God emotionally. And my experiences with God, they, they boost my, my feeling close to God. And I've seen it in so many places where I've worshipped in the past where people interact with God almost just in emotion. So what happens when your emotions are down? Has God left you? Has He forsaken you? Has He departed from you? What happened to the seal of the Holy Spirit then? Does, does that no longer apply? If all you do is act and relate to God emotionally without truth, you might miss the great richness that even in the depths God is there because that's a truth, that's a promise that He has given you, us. He will not leave nor forsake us. So if your experience with God, if your Christian relationship with God is, is sort of all on emotion, then I would say get into some truth. Bolster your emotions with truth so that your emotions can resound with a basis of truth and knowledge and understanding and wisdom and revelation from God. But secondly, if your entire relationship with God is all intellectual and all truth, then maybe you need to open yourself up to some of the emotions so that you can feel God too. I think that's just as important. How are you interacting with God with your emotions, not just truth? For some people, music is one outlet for that. And if music's not your jam, that's okay. Find something else that helps you emotionally collect based on the truth of God. The third thing I would encourage us today is to embrace hope and our inheritance. You know, appreciate the hope that we have in Christ and our position as part of God's glorious inheritance. Live within that sense of hope and confidence in God's promises and recognize the value of being part of God's family. And my final, I guess, application, if you like, how, how does this might this impact your, your, life, your, your week ahead, is to share God's blessings. Reach out to your community, neighbours, friends, family, whoever, the random guy walking the dog out the front, whoever. Live with a sense of hope and confidence in God's promises 
and recognise the value of being part of his family by reaching out to our community, to our neighbours and friends who share the truth of God's love, his grace and the hope we have in the gospel of our salvation. As we take comfort in the blessings we've received in Christ and work together as the church to live in his power, each of these things will help us strengthen our bond with one another. They will each help us become more united and it is in Christ where our unity rests. I know that this last week and months leading up to this last week has been, have been very divisive. But when we look at what, when God is sovereign, we need to accept what happened yesterday, regardless of what side we're on. But we need to do better in reaching and helping the most vulnerable in our community. One way we can help them, the, the most important way, is with the hope of the gospel to meet the spiritual needs. But we should also support meeting physical needs too. So may we rest in, in Christ where our unity rests. May we be agree, in agreement with Christ. And may we each deepen our understanding of God's sovereignty, embrace hope and gratitude, pursue wisdom and understanding, and actively share the blessings the truth of the Christian faith has with others. May we acknowledge and live in submission to Christ's Lordship in all aspects of our life and in unity together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I come before you now and humbly ask that, Lord, you give us the ability to rest in your sovereignty. Whatever the circumstances that are presenting us right now, may we trust in you. We might not understand them. We might not even agree with them. But Lord, may we rest in your sovereignty. Lord, may we also pursue wisdom and understanding. May we seek a deeper knowledge and understanding of you through your word. May we not just know you in truth, but Lord, know you with our emotions also. And Lord, may we embrace the great hope that we have in our inheritance, that we are your inheritance. And may we share the blessings that you have given us in great abundance with others. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.